Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warriors will interview entrepreneurs about their multi-dimensional journey so you can engineer your life with more depth, meaning, and legacy. If you have any friends who grapples with taking a leap of faith to have more meaning in their life, go ahead and share this episode with them. They really thank you for it. My next guest is Dr. Jeff Spencer. He's a legendary cornerman who has helped athletes win over 40 gold medals. Executives built iconic businesses and thought leaders catapult to the top of their fields. He has been featured in Forbes, Inc., Huffington Post, and worked with the likes of Tiger Woods, Bono, Lance Armstrong, Nike, Hitachi, and Bulletproof. His proudest achievement is raising his adopted daughter with his wife. In our conversation, we talked about the two parts of human nature, the survival instinct and the champion's mindset. We talked about the role of an elder for champions. We talked about three kinds of advisors champions have, coaches, mentors, and cornermen. We talked about the criteria and responsibility of a good cornerman. We talked about what's the biggest difference between elite champions like Bono, Tiger Woods, and Lance Armstrong and the rest. We talked about the source of FOMO and Dr. Spencer's secrets to live a peaceful life. We talked about the art of having a pre-conversation as an advisor before your clients turn the corner. We talked about the nature of the imposter syndrome and the self-doubting voice. And Dr. Spencer also shared his magic eraser method to erase past regrets. And finally, why now is the pivotal moment in history to show up and express your truth. Please enjoy my conversation with the legendary cornerman, Dr. Jeff Spencer. Without further ado, welcome to Noble Warrior, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks. I, I love the noble warrior side of it. You know, all of us have got a warrior inside, but we have to fight the noble fight. So it couldn't be a better choice of words. So I want to talk about wisdom. That's something that I'm deeply appreciative. Noble warrior, a huge part of it is all about uh, really helping people go through the journey from warrior to commander to king mm -hmm. to elder. Every video that I see you speak, on the bicycle riding, somebody throwing some random numbers or random questions. You're always so articulate. You're able to speak mm -hmm. in triplets, this, this, and this, in all of them without much uhs and ums and verbal tics. How do you do that? I'm so curious. I think it's all about channeling. It's showing up and uh, really listening to the question and being able to share your response without running it through a filter. I think also after time, when you've examined um, your life and you've had a chance to look at things from multiple perspectives, clarification is one of the refinement byproducts of that that allows one to say more in fewer, higher impact words. So when you say channeling, if you don't mind diving deep into that, channeling from what? Where is this from? Where is this inspiration or wisdom coming from? The within, the without? Like, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of the above. All of us come into this world as uh, a unique uh, addition of one. There's only one of us in all creation. Nobody has our perspective. Nobody is born with our assets, which gives us an amazing opportunity to 
create a life of distinction and also put our unique stamp on humanity over time based on the forces that we're around and what our natural inclination is we gravitate towards certain things that create our unique cocktail of us on how we view the world and also how we describe that to others and that's a journey that uh, it never has an ending you never arrive at an end point it's always in evolution i think there's something in us that all would like to believe at a certain point we'll get to the summit where we can cruise control for a while but as far as i know that's not happened yet and i feel that also when we're in the process of opportunity to share a, a sacred moment in time with people that we come from our truth uh, so that there's no ambivalence or uh, misconstruing who we are and, and what we stand for mm. I think I don't remember exactly the different levels that you had is competitors, something, something championship. The way I interpret what you just share is ultimately when you get to, when you start out playing finite games, right? I want to win. I wanted to, you know, get some medals, but for me, and after winning some of those games and I'm like, okay, to me now it's more about the horizon, the infinite mm -hmm. games. I'm curious to know if you can help articulate the difference between finite games and infinite games. Well, finite games are that you have a body of evidence that creates a trajectory towards something that's visible. And that's a point A to point B, full visibility. But then there's a conjecture, like what's beyond the horizon. You could look at your assets and do an exercise of uncensored possibility thinking to take maybe what our, our assets are now, and if we bolster them in some way, shape, or form, what might be possible? It's probably, it goes both way, of course, but probably more likely that if you learn to become an uncensored possibility thinker, which is actually a skill, that's where we take the time to learn to penetrate our ceiling of what we're comfortable with thinking that we believe is possible, but we actually talk ourselves beyond that then there's a possibility that maybe we don't have the assets to get to yet, but perhaps that's the very thing that informs us of what we need to do to get the assets that puts us in a place where we can then look at what we're proposing and actually believe that it's possible. And if that's the case, then we just need to prepare well and make sure that we have uh, the path moving from where we are to where we want to get to. And we understand what the process of getting from where we are to where we want to get to is going to look like so that we don't talk ourselves out of things when things uh, start to appear differently than we anticipated. Mm. Now, I want to circle back to what we started off the importance of having an elder, right? Because in especially America, this is whole idea, this myth of the self-made man versus having a championship team. So I'm curious to know, can you tie that out, the role of the elder, the evolution of someone who's been there, a competitor, now you're an elder um, in wisdom. I mean, uh, and then how, to, how now that you're an elder, how do you help another to be part of their championship team and then help them evolve? Uh, the way that I look at it is that uh, when we're born, we, we all have a human nature and that human nature has two parts to it, two mentalities actually. We have a human mindset mentality that's our natural survival instincts that we have that are used in times of imminent danger, whether it's psychological or whether it's physical, that is faster than we can think, that gets us out of harm's way, which, which we obviously need. 
in critical situations, but it's designed only to create and produce survival. It's not a good recipe for creating a life of excellence. And that's where the second mentality comes into it, which is our champion's mind, the human mindset or human nature way of responding to life that comes naturally to us is pre-programmed into us. It's on 24 hours a day. You can't shut it off. It's on. And uh, it is responsible, again, for getting us out of harm's way. The biology is that it's faster than we can think. Have you ever said anything to somebody that you regretted saying after you said it, but before you said it, you thought it was going to be really awesome, but it ended up being just the opposite? Well, that's a- All the time, man. All yeah, the time. Well, you know, Jeff. All yeah, exactly right. Well, like all of it. So that's, that's really a, a really good example of this high-speed survival reflex that we have within us is faster than we can think. We didn't ask for that. That's hardwired into our biology, just the way it is. But we do have the champion's mind. And the champion's mind is a living, breathing capacity, supercomputer, beyond supercomputer, that can route, edit, interpret, store, and transmit information, purposeful information selected to be conveyed in a very certain way. And that's a evolutionarily more recent part of us that's not survival directed, but it's all about creating a life of excellence and meaning and contribution. And these two parts of our human nature, our mentalities, they're at war with each other 24 hours a day for control over our decision-making. And we experience that as a continuous uneasiness about life where we're pulled and tugged in one way and then we're pulled and tugged in another way. We just kind of don't know which way to go. And that's how we experience this tug of war. And most people come from their uh, human mindset, which is it's set, it's fixed, you can't modify it. And they say, well, that's just me. That's how I am. Well, it's really not. That's the hard wiring of survival, but that's not the best part of you. So we have to be really clear about what we're referring to. And we need to challenge our assumptions about what we presume to be true about the nature of us. And the other thing that I'll say is that the champion's mind that can look at things from perspective, it can run it through the lens of experience and wisdom and make good choices that history tells us that if we do this, it'll take us to where we wanna to get to because there's a body of evidence that confirms that. It's not speculation. Human mindset is speculation. You want it bad enough, it's gonna happen. Well, wait a minute, hold on a second. Just because you want it, if you don't have the skills, you're not gonna get what you want. So there's a lot of mythology that surrounds this, but to, to only say that um, these two parts of our human nature, we need to be mindful of to decide what we're going to align ourselves with. Because if we wanna create a life of excellence, we can't get there if we engage life through our, our natural, human responses because they're based on survival. They're not based upon excellence. We have to step outside of that to actually become supernatural in a sense that we're not a slave to our high-speed reflexes that do not serve us well. So I'll kind of begin our conversation keeping that in mind. And it takes a while to start to see that, wait a minute, maybe this kind of go with my first impulse isn't such a good idea because it's not serving me that well but yet that's what all the experts are saying. So I just suggest that we take the time to kind of examine this a little bit and we look at how we make decisions and we see, well, is it actually taking me to where I wanna to get to, yes or no? And if it's not, then it's probably because we're stuck on our human mindset 
we don't understand the champion's mind yet. And that's why I say that the journey from uh, early developmental um, exposure to environments, people, places, and things uh, will inform us about certain things. But over time, we can develop a wisdom that supersedes that where we're making predictable choices that can accurately take us from where we are to where we want to get to. But it takes time in the game and it takes receptivity and a willingness to learn and apply unconventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is what do I feel about this? Respond quickly. Uh, when we invert common wisdom, then we're coming at it through a contrarian view, which is what the champions know about themselves and others that other people don't, that creates the distinction between what they're able to produce and what the others would like to produce, but they can never produce consistently. Uh, there's so much there. I mean, we can spend a whole, whole thing right there, right? Because in my mind, how do you go from intellectual, like uh, understanding of something to deep embodied wisdom? Uh, and on this podcast, we do talk about, maybe not in the way that you talk about it, but we talk about our deepest wisdom lies in the intersection of the body, mind, and heart. So, so this is a little bit different way, but I think it's, it's similar. So what I'm curious to know, how do you discern not just the survival instinct, not just pure intellectual understanding, forcing into something, I should do this because of my inherent identity or my parents or something wanted validation or something to something that's deep within the body, right? They embody wisdom from the heart, the gut biome or the, the mind as well, working together to really come from that place of deep wisdom. I think it's a great question. I think first and foremost is that what's the source and the genesis of the information that we believe? And in that respect, we have to take whatever our hypothesis is or what we believe to be true, and we implement it, and then we measure it against the reality of the outcome. Because there's a lot of things that sound good, but they can't deliver. And that may come from deep within, but it gets really messy inside because how do we dissect intuition from emotion you know i mean everything starts to get pretty jumbled up in there i feel that over time the best way to handle this is that if you have an impression about something you may want to check in with somebody that's a little bit more downstream to check in on what you're presuming to be true and see what they have to say about it and if it's in alignment with it then you're probably interpreting it correctly but if it's not and there's a reason that is uh, well founded to question your interpretation of it, then it deserves pause. And that way we're getting experiential feedback that confirms to us what the reality really is. And the first part of life, I think, is a lot about presumptions because uh, I, I know that there's a certain age group where people think that whatever they think to be true, it is just because they think it. And then they realize, you know what? Uh, I did a lot of really stupid things that really hurt me a lot. But man, did I think that they were right. Let's take, for example, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I mean, have you ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or both at the same time? And you feel like this is Mr. and Mrs. Right. I mean, this is, good, this is as good as it gets. And then like two weeks later, you're thinking, what, I, what was I thinking? I mean, this couldn't be a worse match ever, but it seems so real at the time. I think we've all had that. And that's why... Time in the game is important. Wondering about our presumptions about what our first impulse is. Is that an impulse from our human mindset? 
that's all based on fear or is that a, a wisdom play based upon historic wisdom that's been confirmed through if I do this, then this is what history tells us will be the predicted outcome. Got I it. Think it, it takes a while to get there. And as I, I told my daughter, I said, look, you know, the zone of doom here is between 18 and 25. If you could just get through the zone of doom there, because she declared at 17, dad, I don't need your help anymore. I just know everything there is to know. And I don't need your help. I know what to do. I got it. You know, don't worry. I got it. Famous last words. Yeah. yeah. And I'm saying, just remember, we talked about this in advance. We got the zone of doom here. Can you just promise me that you're not going to do anything reckless that seems really important and good to you before you're 25? Just please get to 20, get to 26, you know? Um, and so... I think nobody's going to listen, of course, because we all think just because we think it that it's true or we feel that it's true. But it, it, it can take a, a lot of scar tissue to realize that our presumption wasn't correct. And uh, I feel that it's really important to have deep, meaningful conversations that tease out the difference between impulse, reaction, response, heart, soul intuition i mean all of this gets kind of messy and if we don't have an operational definition that represents it co uh, correctly then we can use a lot of things interchangeably that we believe to be true that we can be given a nod for that actually take us down a path uh, to ruin actually and that's why i suggest that uh, again there be some level of ongoing counsel about what history informs us to be true about certain thoughts that we're thinking and what does history tell us about what that outcome is. Mm. So I agree eventually over time what happens like for myself mm. is that I've been in the game so long, I have pattern recognition where I can see in a snapshot in time, the context of everything and know what that pattern represents. And I can know exactly where it's headed and also come up with the right path forward to, to the promised land. But that's been experience that in skill that I've developed over time. So is have you ever seen the movie Limitless? No, I haven't. By Bradley Cooper. Oh, okay. It's real, it's a cool movie. But anyways, uh since you don't know, I won't make the reference. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> and moving on. Uh, so what do you think is the role of the elder inside of what you just shared? You know, having one human having a subjective experience, but also checking in any objective term, you know, whether things are going the way that you want it to go and so on and so on. What's the role of an elder in this case? Well, the elder uh, should be viewed as a resource, as a reality check against presumption, because the, the worst thing that could happen is that we make a judgment on a presumption that isn't true, but it seems right. And that happens all the time. And there's a timing, a pacing. There's all sorts of factors that need to be considered in regard to actions taken against a predicted or desired outcome. And experience is uh, different than intellectual learning. There's a lot of people that pass the test correctly but fail the life experience. Therefore, there needs to be an apprenticeship taking what we academically learn and test it against reality it would be best and ideal if we do that in a safe environment where we limit the scar tissue and we don't take or put ourselves down a cul-de-sac that uh, takes five years to back up out of and a lot of time and effort and expense. And we also then start to not trust ourselves because some of the reckless 
choices that we made that we thought to be true that didn't work out so well. That's always a, a risk in the situation. Mm. So you call yourself a cornerman versus a coach. Yeah. Before I, so before I ask you further questions about that, do you mind sharing your definition of a coach versus a cornerman? Yeah, sure. The way that I look at it, there's like three types of advisors. You have a coach who's a specialist in a single area. For example, when I was working with U2, uh, Bono had a voice coach and his job was to be there and warm him up before he went on stage. That was his whole single objective. That was a slice of the pie that had to go right for him to perform well on stage. It wasn't everything. He didn't know about the rest of his life, but he could help him warm his voice up. But again, screwing up on stage may be the result of something other than he gave him, but that was not his domain to have any influence on. Therefore, Bono was still at risk. Then you could take, uh, and coaches are necessary, of course, like the Edge had his guitar stringer. He's the guy that came in and changed all the guitar strings. You know, Larry on his drums, same deal. Those are absolutely 100% necessary, but let's make sure that we clarify the domain and why they're there and that nobody trespasses outside those boundaries because then we may get inaccurate information that uh, puts us in peril. Then you have the uh, mentor who's got a little bit more bandwidth. Like you can have a like life mentor, I guess, is one way of looking at it. You could have uh, a business mentor. You could have a financial mentor, a little bit more scar tissue, a little bit more gray hair, et cetera, a little bit more wisdom. But again, it's a similar problem. They only know their level of expertise. Well, what about the rest of this person that has influence on everything in their lives? How do we account for that? And you know, for me, that's where the corner man comes into it. When we look at the corner man, this is a person that's older. You know, in my opinion, they have to be at least 60 years of age. And the reason why I say that is that it takes about 50 years to get through one lap of life where you've seen about everything for the first time. And then after that, you start to see things a second and a third time. Oh, now I start to get the pattern here. And so I'm 20 years past that first lap. So I've got you know 20 years into this and about 500,000 hours in the high performance world. So I've had a pretty darn good exposure here about seeing what the reality and the patterns are. Um, and then you have the rarest of the species, which I call the corner man. And if you look at this from a couple of perspectives, generally people have a lot of advisors or coaches in a variety of different areas, but they don't have anybody in their corner watching their backs, watching everything unfold in real time, taken as a totality. And an example of that would be the movie Rocky. Rocky had Mickey, the older guy in his corner, who was watching Rock while he was in the ring slugging it out, trying to survive and stake his territory. Uh, Mickey knew what to do based upon where Rock was to be able to avoid catastrophe and be able to seize best opportunities to win the round to become the perennial champion of the world. And a couple of key words here is to see the full spectrum of the person's experience taken as a totality. Like I can be with somebody and I can know enough about through some questions that I ask what the composite of their personal and their professional life looks like as a totality in their universe that has forces acting on it and they think in a certain way that creates a trajectory. So I kind of know where this is all going to end. And the question is, is this where you want it to end or not? Because if it is, then you just weed the garden in front of it. But it's, if it's not, then you need to make some course corrections. So we have this presumption that whatever path we're on is going to take us where we want to get to just because we have a plan. Well, maybe there's more than that. 
And unless somebody is looking at it in totality that has the experience to look at it and intervene and tighten things up, then again, we're making presumptions. So an example of this would be is that um, if a group of peers has the same problem and they're giving each other their recommendations, should we trust that? Well, you could trust that to some degree, but they probably have the same problem. So they're giving each other similar advice that may not be enough advice that we need that somebody that has more experience could give us that is more predictable and being able to take us from where we are to where we want to get to. And that's the value uh, of the uh, elder. They're not some crotchety person that says, get off my lawn. You know, it's not <laughs> like, you know, it's like, let me shortcut your path to bigger and let me save you a lot of unnecessary pain and scar tissue. To me, that's what the elder is. But people that are older are looked at as either damaged goods or uh, faulty in their thinking or being old fashioned. But the one thing I do know is that truth is truth. And if we know how to interpret what we see correctly based on history, then we have a really good chance of being able to get to the finish line the first time without tripping. Because if you trip and you don't finish, you don't win. Mm. A lot of gems in what you just said. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, where do we go from here? <laughs> well, well uh, as a cornerman, yeah. could you identify other cornermen? Because you said there was a few and far between. Yeah, right? they are. Yeah. How do you know whether someone is up and coming cornerman, whether someone's already made it, you know, the experienced cornerman, a good one versus a bad one. So from someone who's made it, what are some of the criterion that you can give to our listener to say, these are the things that you want to look for in the corner, man? Sure. Well, first off, uh, let's talk about a couple of things here is that, um, you know, 50 is an important age because as I said, it takes about 50 years to see everything in life. And a corner man is somebody that can see your life from every conceivable perspective because they've been there. They have the experience and the knowledge to have been successful in many areas and help people in many areas become successful. They can meet you where you are and they can be, they can bring a perspective that's the right starting point for you in your journey, journey moving forward in its entirety, both personally and professionally. You can get a technical expert that's 40 that'll show you what ink cartridge to use in your uh, printer for sure. Or they can give you, well, this is how you fire somebody. You know, they can give you technical information like that. But that's, again, a mentor or a coach. That, that's not a corner man. A corner man is someone that comes off the mountain, comes out of the cave once in a while and walks down into town and says three words and turn around and go back up the hill, back into the cave, uh, only because they have this universal ability to see it. So here's my criteria you got to be about 60 at least. I know that sounds like ancient, but it, it's kind of like really not. Um, you can't be too pretty. If you're not walking with a limp, <laughs> you, know, just start, <laughs> you know, or, or a nick out of your ear, it's or, so or your nose, you know, I just don't trust you. Okay. I got to see some evidence of scar tissue. And so when battle I tested, battle tested, yeah, battle tested, man, you know, there's not a limp or, you know, something like this just too pretty, man. Just, I don't trust it. So we got to have that for sure. Um, and then they have to 
dress in a certain way that kind of informs you that they're current and present. You know what I mean? It can't be like um, too old fashioned or whatever. There's got to be some indicators of current relevance that that they're uh, sensitized to. Uh, I think also there is a, a resonance that we need to have spending time around them or looking at videos on them, et cetera. There is a, a resonance that you're going to perceive that maybe isn't intellectually uh, understandable, but there's something about an inquisitiveness that there's a gravity towards that's uh, worth uh, experiencing. And of course, looking at their pedigree and uh, generally uh, a corner man can be in many different areas. Like I can work with people in sports business and entertainment. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, the details of the specialty, someone else can come in as a coach and they can help you again on you know what program you need to be or what app you need. But it's you, the person, how you show up. Can you lead? Can you make good decisions? Do you know, do you know how to choose a right goal? Uh, how is it that you're mobilizing your team and why should they follow you into the future? Do you even trust yourself? I mean, those are all questions that need to be looked at and there needs to be a credible source of uh, credibility in the individual to, to believe. And, and I'll also say that if there's a couple of maybe strikes against them that's not a sign to dismiss them because that may actually may be a sign of trust because they've kind of been through what uh, they would need to be through to be able to understand everything. Like it's not unusual for even the most successful businessmen to have gone through, uh, you know, perhaps a bankruptcy, but yet they came back stronger while well, they learned something. So that imbues a certain level of trust that this person has really been through the full spectrum of experience. Um, those are the things that I think are, uh, really necessary. And I'm also going to say that if you do this sooner than later, it's better. And you don't go for less than it's important to go. If you if think a, a highly paid uh, advisor is uh, expensive, hire an amateur and see how much it costs to get out of the problem that he'll create for you. That's the way that I would I would first do this. Uh, I think also another thing is that if somebody talks too much, I don't trust them. You know, the, the people that really know the game, they don't really necessarily talk a lot. They're not trying to hog the microphone. They're not trying to make a point. They're usually the person that's sitting in the, you know, more in the back of the room, kind of anonymous. You don't really notice them. Their uh, dress and their appearance is, uh, is appropriate, but they're not, you know, clamoring for the microphone. They're not pontificating about how great they are and who they've worked with. There's a certain uh, level of, uh, the ambivalence, I think, that kind of needs to be there where they kind of have this take it or leave it sense about them where you can trust them. You know that they're going to tell you what it is. They're not going to tell you what you want to hear just to keep uh, the um, rotisserie going for another couple of months. Uh, I think those are. Wait, wait, back up. What what was that reference? Rotisserie? Yeah, rotisserie. You know, it's like on the conveyor belt, you know, well, let's keep this going. We're just ready for a breakthrough. Let's work for the next six months. I just see the breakthrough right around the corner. You know, I've already heard this, you know, for the last 18 months, you know, it, it's probably not, you know, real yet. I think also listen to their language. If they're promising too much too quick, that's never like a good sign. You want to make sure that they're not trying to make you fit what they know. The corner man that needs to be able to extract your essence and be able to come to you with the path that you have resonance with, that you know that it's been personally constructed for you uh, based upon uh, their experience as well. Those are, I think, all really important criteria. Mm. 
Um, so here's a few things that I remember. Okay. So over 60, mm-hmm. battle tested, underline this battle tested. And then part of it, I think sharing my personal experience <clears throat> when I was younger, I wanted someone who would, with perfect track record. Mm-hmm. But then after having gone through a few dark night of the souls moment that I realized I actually don't want someone with perfect track record because there's no right. relatedness to That's people who I'm are saying, going yeah. through their dark night of the soul yeah. moment. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because there's right. actually huge learnings and blessings in disguise. And I want to get those insights for someone who's having gone through, you know, maybe bankruptcy or divorce or whatever the traumatic thing that they go through because they, once they're over, once they're through it, they come out stronger. Exactly right. And they can give uh, advice, not because they learned it in a book, but because they experienced it. And, and you can hear that in the conversation for sure. You know, there's a resonant tone where certain things are said in a certain way that inform you that this person's lived the experience. You know, there's a trueness to it. And that's a really important, uh, maybe nonverbal criteria to be mindful of when you're in the presence of somebody that you're perhaps considering for that uh, important role. Yeah. And he also said, this person isn't eager to hog the mic. Correct. Because to me, you didn't say this, but this is my interpretation. This is what I say is there's a sign of insecurity if you have to speak. Versus a real confidence embodiment, like, hey, I know what I know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I don't know. You want it, fantastic. You don't want mm-hmm. it, fantastic. Like yeah, exactly right. subtle, you know, energy about this, you know, gravitas. That would right. It's a great word. Yeah. So so these and then also you said dress appropriately. So it's not mm-hmm. too uh <laughs> disconnected with the times. Right. But, it, but, but it's still like subtle. Yeah, it has to be subtle. Like the feeling is they're kind of listening. You know what I mean? I could tell that they're listening. They're kind of, they're there. They're where they need to be. They're not uh, overdressing. Nothing's worse than a 65-year-old woman wearing a miniskirt. You know what I mean? Trying to be relevant. You know, it's like now I've ruined myself for the rest of the conversation because I got the image in my head now. But, you know, just to say that. I, I do not have a comment on that one. Yeah. I think <laughs> you are the person that said it. Just to sort of say the things have to be kind of proportional, you know, it's like if they're, brand, if they're driving a brand new Corvette, that's kind of racy for them, you know, maybe something more understated that would make sense. So there are kind of these signals that you sort of look at and you say, okay, is this person really current, but they're not trying to visibly prove a point, you know what I mean? There's this, again, this cocktail, this mixture that has a resonance of safety attached to it because they don't have too much investment in trying to convince other people of their value. I guess that's what we're saying here. Yeah, I got it. On the embodied place of confidence rather there you than go. Instead of better fostering yeah. and yeah, the young energy, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I want to bring it to the theme of our talk. <laughs> I can talk cool. to you for hours. I can tell already. <laughs> yeah. The theme is how do you deliberately play at your full potential? And I know that you are a man of precision. So you chose those words very specifically, deliberate, play, full potential, right? right? So share with us a little bit about why did you pick those words and put them in that particular phrase? Uh, to play a big game, uh, it's uh, intentional. It's a process. It's not an accident. It's deliberate in a sense that there's a, a path to that place because we only have so much time to get there. We can't rush and we can't... Uh, just take forever to get there. It's deliberate. It's it's calculated. 
a lot of people think that uh, it's spontaneous, but it's really not. If people think that, that will and talent are enough, well, it's something, but it's not everything. It's uh, uh, really about um, time in the game. It's about building the assets over time to not try to get ahead of yourself. It's about charting and setting milestones that have to be met that are signs and indicators that you're on track to get from where you are, where you want to get to. And uh, those are the reasons why I say it's uh, deliberate. And there's another perspective of looking at this is that full potential play is really a, a destination that's always morphing and changing over time where your full potential play at 40 is different than your full potential play at 60. Therefore, we're never quite getting there and staying there. We can get to there moment by moment and hold the space, providing that we're continuing to evolve. And the key here is that you're not adding more to what you're doing so that you're suffocating yourself, believing more or harder will get you there. But as we're developing proficiencies in certain areas, we're then substituting them for something else that needs to come in so the volume of engagement stays the same but the sophistication of the level of play is continuing to uh, evolve to higher and higher levels over time and if we look at this as a progression between different uh, states of being you could say that you could be a spectator where you're not even on the ladder you're watching from the outside or you could be in the game for the first time new to it then you could aspire to top of field, top of field goes to master, master goes to champion, champion goes to full potential player. It's an ascension ladder that if it's a path that we choose to be, that we can find our way through those different uh, ascension points along the ladder that will take us to that rarefied air. It's one thing to get there, it's another thing to stay there. It's a constant process of evolution that has to be crafted in a very special way to be able to hold that uh, space indefinitely over time. That's what that kind of looks like. It's not for everybody. People think of full play, meaning that I have the ability to put my maximum into my recreational life, maximum into my professional life. It's not like that. But here's the secret to this. Everybody listen up. If you're going to remember, only one thing I say, listen to this, is that when we look at the number of elements and parts that have to be there to have the combination of skills and assets to play at our potential. Once we've identified those, we want the minimum amount, the minimum number of those items. Once those are optimized, and notice I didn't say perfect. Once all the parts are optimized, then they harmonize into a single system. And when we reach that point of harmony, then there's an exponential output capacity that's the emergent property of all the parts working together. You could look at a family, for instance. You could say, well, when everybody in a family is doing what they should be doing, not perfectly, then there's harmony in the family. And when there's harmony in the family, then there's exponential potential to enjoy the experience and contribute to each other. So therefore, it's a different kind of way of looking at things. We're not chasing a perfection in one single area. We're not downgrading any area to be average. We're saying that we're looking to optimize all the parts that need to be in the system 
And once they're optimized, they harmonize into exponential. And juggling that is really the uh, whole name of the game. Again, that's a corner man issue because each of those balls that are in the juggling act uh, has to be at a certain level that requires a certain level of expertise input to hold the level of performance required of that to maintain the exponential symmetry, if that makes sense. And that's, yeah. the act. that's the art. That's the art of the game right there. It's so good. Everything. Oh man. So like right here, this segment is so good. It's, for those of you listening, definitely go back and listen to it again. On this podcast, we use the yin yang sign a lot as a way to illustrate what you just described. The 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 whole idea of actually bring the harmony between the yin and the yang, mm -hmm. such that we can actually. It's not about perfecting one area and then maximizing yeah. that. It's not about perfecting or or maximizing both. It's really about bringing the point of harmony, such that mm -hmm. we can you know work the best you truly optimize and from that space of harmony then you can play bigger and bigger games yeah and it's interesting because that goes exactly opposite of what human nature makes us think human nature makes us think well you got to be perfect across the board and everything to be perfect and put in the perfect performance that's complete mythology but yet to our human mind that makes sense to the human mindset that makes sense but to the champion's mind they know that that's not real and it's actually not necessary. So again, we have this human nature mythology that talks to us in these platitudes of language that all the experts are talking about, and we all believe and wag our heads in agreement. But yet, when we look at the champion's mind, they actually in, invert that common wisdom, which produces the outcome that's necessary to move up the ascension rung to become best in field, become your own champion, then move up into full potential play. So, so let me bring it back to the um, the role of an elder real quick, because you had talked about being an elder, being a cornerman. You're able to see the entire field better, right? You're able to see it in, in objectivity because you're not in the game, so to speak, right? And then that you can avoid some painful moments. But I want to challenge you a bit on that notion because part of the player earning the wisdom, earning the stripe is through the pain well yeah so yeah. then how do you you know you want them to learn but actually not you know cripple themselves so to speak so i'm curious to know how do you balance that so that they could still get the wisdom that they need versus just get intellectual uh, understanding from you right so that would be the minimal minimal Vi uh, minimum viable exposure. That's a new term we just coined here. <laughs> really, we just invented this here in this podcast. Uh, for example, my daughter, there are times when I actually wanted her soccer team to lose because I knew the only way they could get better is to really see where the deficiency were uh, and they were getting just a little bit too confident in their level of play. And I could see their growth being stunted by uh, the mythology of believing that they had arrived. I mean, mm -hmm. that may sound mean, but it's not mean at all. I just realized that, you know, I hope you guys wake yourselves up sooner than later to continue your path of evolution. That's where a corner man comes into it because a corner man knows how, a corner man knows your reach. That's the advantage. The mentor and the coach may try to make you fit what they know 
but that's not what a corner man does. A corner man knows how to meet you where you are, and he knows how to create the right reach that will teach you the lesson experientially without putting you in unnecessary harm's way. And that's the difference. And that takes a massive amount of uh, insight and wisdom. For example, uh, one of my very dear friends, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast would know who this person is if I told you, but I'm not going to tell you because I haven't asked his permission to share this and his name. But he asked me if I would spend some time uh, with his 14-year-old son, who is an absolute prodigy. And uh, I said, of course I would, because he's someone I dearly love as a friend. There's nothing I wouldn't do for him. And uh, the, the reason why he asked me to do this is that he and his wife had taken the son about as far as they could go. And they know what I do. And they asked if I would do this. And I said, of course I would. And in talking with the son, I mean, that's a huge responsibility being asked by a good friend to be the steward of their son that they're entrusting me to influence and giving input into the sculpting of their future. I mean, that's an amazing privilege. There's pressure that goes with that too. I mean, it doesn't bug me because I know what to do, but just to sort of say that, you know, that's a kind of a highly charged um, relationship, should we say. But as I told the um, the 14-year-old, I said, you and I are going to be talking right now as if you're going to be playing in the Super Bowl next week as the quarterback, because that's one of his ambitions. And I said, that conversation starts right now. We're not going to talk in a different way and then all of a sudden change it later to a higher level of sophistication, is that you're going to now experience what that is like exactly as I would talk to an Olympian with aspirations of winning a gold medal. You and I are having that conversation like right now. Because I knew that if I spoke to him in that language, he could adapt and absorb whatever I said. I just needed to prune the language back. But to select what his reach was for what we were going to be doing for him to continue his evolutionary path towards his ambition in his evolution like as an athlete. Quick yeah. question. Quick question. Yeah, of course. Yes. So one of the common coaching principles is meet people where they're at. But what you just demonstrated mm-hmm. was more about actually speak to them from the actualized version of themselves and have correct. them actually reach for that versus meet them that's where correct. they're at. Yeah, that, that's correct. Like, you know, the child, we don't talk baby talk to our baby. You know, we talk human talk to the baby, so they're used to human talk. We're not discounting them, but we're only saying we're not going to discount what's possible for them. So I do believe that there has to be an aspirational side to this because people can rise to the occasion. I feel that we need to call to them from that place. I'll give you another example is that uh, I was... uh, brought in to work with a very precocious athlete. When I work with athletes, right now all of my work is in business, just to get the record straight. Even though I was Olympian, I did help all these people win gold medals and stuff. I'm not in the athletic world right now. So please everybody be mindful, all my work is in the business space. But at that time I was uh, brought in um, as a very highly paid advisor to work with the talent that a company 
had invested millions and millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars in for me to help uh, craft his potential. And I said to him, I want to meet you at 1030 on Saturday morning at this location at the competition venue. He said, well, I don't understand why 1030. We don't compete until 10 at night. We're not going to be done until 1130. I said, I'll see you there. And he met me there uh, that morning on Saturday. I said, well, where are we here? He said, oh, well, this is where the press is going to be standing when the trophies are handed out tonight in the television coverage is going to beam the ceremony around the world. I said, that's correct. What do you notice here? He said, oh, well, there's a stage over there. I said, yeah, what's on the stage? He said, uh, a podium. I said, that's correct. I said, what are podiums for? He said, well, that's where the bronze, gold, and the silver medal stand for the award ceremony. I said, that's correct. He said, well, what does that have to do with me? I said, I want you to go up on stage and turn around and look at me like I'm the press. And I want you to stand up as if you just won the competition and look at me. And so he went up there and he kind of looked at the podium like, I don't know if I should be here, you know? And then he kind of stood up on the bronze metal platform and looked around a little bit. And then he kind of, man, I don't know if I should be here. And then he stood up on the top rung, you know, where the gold medal was. And he kind of looked around. And he kind of waved to me like that. And I said, that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Get down off the podium. Let's do it again. Can you just do it like you believe that you belong there? Yeah. So we went through this about 50 times. And finally, an hour and a half later, he got it right where he stood up and he put his hand up there, chest out, chin up. And I said, you got that? Well, freeze that. And he said, well, I haven't won yet. I said, well, that's exactly right. I want you to know what to do when you do win so you don't get up there and everybody thinks you don't, you're wondering why you're there. You got to learn to do it before you get there. That's precisely why we're doing this. So that's kind of the point that I want to make is that we kind of do have to get ahead of ourselves so that when we get there, we're going to know what to do. So here's the deal. Everybody talks about imposter syndrome, right? That's garbage. Let me explain why. It's like if you're here and you want to go here, right? Well, how do you get to here with being here? You get to here by doing what has to happen to be this, right? Well, how can that be an imposter? It's the way you go from here to here. The real imposter is us believing that the voice inside us that doesn't want us to go there is us. That's the imposter. So when we kind of realign this thing by saying, well, yeah, you know, we should get familiar with that so we can come from that when the opportunity arises. So we uh, complete the action as it needs to be completed. So people on the outside look at us as if we believe that we believe to be there because that inspires confidence in them and us. So, not, so not, if you don't mind, can we go drill in on that yeah. moment real quick? Because yeah, what you just share is tactical steps that you use as a way to cultivate a new way of being a la yes. confidence, right? A la Correct. champion mindset, right? Correct. Correct. And then, and then I think part of the illusion is my self-doubt voice always would, would go away. And in my mind, I, I can, I, I'll make myself as an example. The self-doubt voice is always there. I just learn to be with it. And then such that, you know, it doesn't impact me anymore. So I'm curious, you know, since you work with the champion of champions, what's your, I guess, assertion around this whole idea of the self-doubt voice? Well, I think we covered that previously when I said we have a survival instinct 
that we're born with that you can't shut off that's biological in nature. It just is. Our primal objective as an entity is survival because if we don't survive, then nothing matters. That's why it's the highest priority psychologically and physically. That's the highest priority. And so my position is, is that we do have a high speed reflex that takes us out of harm's way that's faster than we can think. Well, what proof do you have that that's true? Well, if you look at the science, science tells me that I'm seeing you as you were 250 milliseconds ago. I'm seeing you as you were a quarter of a second ago because it takes time for the optic nerve, once stimulated, to light up the visual cortex. When I put my foot on the ground, I'm consciously aware of that a half a second later. We think everything happens in real time. It, that's not the way it works. The body, rearrange, the brain rearranges things. The nervous system rearranges things in time to make it seem like it's now when it's actually not. And so, therefore, the high-speed response that we have that is well-known is faster than we can think because the neurology, everybody thinks neuroscience is everything. Well, it's something, but it's not everything because there are other communication systems in the body that are faster than the nervous system, one of which is our survival instinct that is faster than we can think. You can't think your way to turn the car out of the way of an oncoming car because of the quarter of a second delay. That means you're dead. That's mm. what that means. So clearly there's something. If you ever slipped on ice and your hand knows where to put it to break the fall, did you actually think your hand to go there? No. Well, then why did it decide to go there? I mean, clearly something was listening that was extra uh, nervous system. I mean, for sure. So the idea, the way that I see it, is that all of these high-speed responses to life that are biologic, we react out of the consequences of a story that's attached to the reaction that creates the fear of avoidance that me we may remember as a story played itself out so a lot of people i've always asked people okay so you talk about these limiting beliefs right okay great well can you tell me the origin of these where do these come from well i don't know uh i learned them from somebody well are you sure about that uh, no. Uh, okay. So then are we born as a blank slate? All of us are born as a blank slate and all of this stuff is put into us. Is that, is that the way this works? Uh, yeah, well, I think so. Well, are you sure? Uh, well, um, we're born clear and clean and then we're uh, corrupted by our environment. Then you ask anybody that has a kid, do your kids lie? Yeah. Who taught them to lie? Um, well, nobody. Uh, well, how come they know how to do that? So there's this whole other, I think, inquiry about what we observe that deserves a level of consideration because, in, in my opinion, and I just had a conversation two weeks ago with somebody about this, uh, I said, and we were talking about Tal Raza, blank slate, and I said to him, so you're telling me that all of these beliefs that we have are put into us from the external environment. We're born as a blank slate. He said, yes. And I said, well, uh, is it possible and is it true that we do have a survival reflex biology that's hardwired into us as human beings? Is that possible? He said, absolutely possible. Well, I said, well, is it possible that that high-speed response to life that you just admitted to me precedes anybody 
informing us of what it is to put those beliefs into us is possible. So well, now that I think about it, yes. And so when I said earlier, have you ever said anything that you felt was just the perfect response, but you realize it was the worst thing that you could have said, and everybody kind of wagged their head, yeah, I've only done that a million times today. Okay, well, how do we account for that? Because that was you saying it, correct? Nobody else said that. It was deliberate and purposeful, but it was faster than you could think. Therefore, where did it come from? Well, perhaps it's part of the reflex. So what I'm saying to you, CK, is that kind of in my opinion of this as I see it, um, and as I've studied it, uh, that um, really a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves are survival-based, one-to-one. And if you ever want to know who the not you is or the imposter is, just ask yourself, did your response come from fear? Well, if it did, then it's a high-speed reflex-derived response, maybe faster than you could think. So I feel that there's a whole side of this. It's biologic. It's not just imprinted into us through what people say or what we've heard uh, from our early developmental environment. So I hope that uh, that came across, at least in terms of uh, understanding what my response was to what you said. And I'm not taking a position that my position was right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's an observation that I've seen that seems to be a very reasonable way of looking at this and accounting for the fact that humanity uh, in our responses to life are just amazingly predictable. I mean, humanity is so amazingly transparent. If you see a set of conditions, you can predict pretty accurately how 90% of the population is going to respond to whatever that a particular event was just because human nature is so predictable. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to add that part to the conversation because if we can't account for that part of ourselves that we look at is not being who we'd like to be if we identify that with us we're screwed and that's exactly what i told a group last night i said that if you believe this person that did what you did was uh the real you then you're screwed because that was perhaps not the real you that was the not you that was responding out of a high speed survival reflex like yelling at your kids or physically hurting somebody these were people that physically hurt people and they had a lot of shame and a lot of remorse about it they could not forgive themselves for what they did because they thought that that was the real them and i'm saying well it's probably not the real you the real you is recognizing what was done that you would prefer to not have had happen, but yet it did. And how do we explain that? And how do you find redemption beyond that? That was the conversation. So mm-hmm. I hope that breeds at least, you know, some level of, of perspective to consider in this conversation. No, I love it. Thank you so much. And one other thing I want to underline, Jeff, is you, everything you said is very logical. So, and then it's, it's almost like um, it's too simple. But oftentimes wisdom is it's you know to to condense everything into the simplicity of it, right? So so appreciate it. Thank so you. let's say when someone has that limiting belief or guilt or shame or whatever, yeah. you know, worrying about things that they did when they're unconscious, 
right? So what are some of the ways that you use personally as a modality to coach him out of that? Just use sheer logic. Do you agree with this, this, and this, or more of what you share about getting on the, to the pedestal? I know that you have many, but what are a few ones that you could share with us? Well, the one that I'll start with actually comes from my daughter, you know, that we adopted 12 years ago. My crowning achievement was raising my daughter. So she comes from um, Colombia. She was raised as a criminal, a thief. We adopted her at 12, at 10, excuse me. And I was tucking her in bed one night when she was 11 and in her broken English. When we adopted her, she didn't speak English. We didn't speak Spanish. It was all sign language. Incredible. It was crazy. And she had a lot of abuse as a kid, a lot of uh, physical and mental abuse. It's as bad as it gets. And uh, she said to me, Daddy, I said, yeah. She said, uh, I did a lot of really bad things in Colombia, you know, because she was raised as a criminal. And lie, cheat, steal, it's all permissible. And she said, um, I, I want to apologize. I don't know how to do that. I said, well, you have a magic eraser. And she said, a magic eraser, what's that? I said, well, here's the way the magic eraser works is that you kind of transport yourself in your mind to be standing in the presence of the people that you would like to make amends to. And you, you tell them as if you're standing in front of them what you want to make amends for and how you would like to make those amends. And when you do that, what the magic eraser does is it erases the memory and the history of that trespass and it resets everything back to as, as if that never, ever happened. So what I'm saying is that every one of us has got a magic eraser. And as I told the people that I was talking with last night, this men's group, and these guys were some, you know, pr pretty hardcore people that were experiencing a lot of remorse about the things that they did. I mean, incredible remorse with it. And I told them that, you know, all of us hold a magic eraser. And I said to them that the impulses that you acted from when you did some of these things were your survival self responding faster than you could think. And you've identified with that as you. And yeah, you're responsible for the outcome of this for sure. You're the one that has to bear the brunt and the responsibility for what happened here. But, but let's acknowledge that there's a biologic side to this that you didn't ask for that's hardwired into you that all of us had that we can't escape because it's on 24 hours a day that we're in conflict with that your champion side has regret and remorse against. And, and part of your recovery and where the redemption comes into this is that you can erase your past where your emergent you can prevail if you use the magic eraser to take yourself back to those moments in time where you step in front of the individuals and you make the amends in the way that you feel they need to be made. And that will erase that part of the equation where you're never going to have to address that again. That will free you up to come from this moment forward from your champion self. Pause conversation today with someone 
And I had a client that I've been working with for a while that uh, had a very, very difficult upbringing, to say the least. Extraordinarily traumatic, but this woman is a genius. And um, one of the things that I said to her, because she's going through a period of incredible remorse right now, she's a scholarship client that I've taken on because she was like chained to a bed for seven years as a kid. Wow. deprived of any sense of human decency wow. that really bent her frame. And she is a brilliant, she is an absolute genius. And she's a PhD candidate right now, uh, writing mm-hmm. her dissertation for her uh, PhD in psychology. And today when we talked, uh, mm-hmm. there was a, uh, a divine providence uh, thing that happened that I guided her to that manifest for her to complete her dissertation, where it was a point where it may not have been uh, able to be completed. But today when we talk, she was in such remorse that she's 55 Mm -hmm. and she has such remorse about what she wasn't able to do because of the severe trauma that was imposed upon her that she did not ask for, that she was acting out of and coming from in that intense remorse about 55 lost years can be devastating to an individual when they know that there's only so much time left. But this is where I want to finish the story about these tools that you asked me about. And what I said to her, I said that like in the athletic world, what happens is that if you have a really bad year, but on the last competition of the year, you have a great, uh, competition, then everybody's going to remember how you finish the job. That's the key here. And mm-hmm. I said that your 55 years have been severely compromised. It's a miracle that you're able to produce this, uh, um, uh, this uh, uh, dissertation. And the thing that I told my daughter too, my daughter always wanted to write a book about her severe trauma. It's as bad as it gets. And I said to her, I said, her name is Ken, K-I-N. Mm-hmm. And I said, Ken, um, the real end of the story here is not that you survived your abuse. That's not the story that can be told here. I said the story that needs to be told here is what you did as the result of finding a way beyond uh, your trauma and your survivorship. And this is exactly what I said to the woman today. And she was despondent. I said, look, uh, the redemption here and the magic eraser completes its job when you realize that how you end the game is what you're going to be remembered for, that erases all the past. So you found a path back to reconciliation where you can look at yourself and say, job well done, mission completed. You have the chance to do that. So I just want to say to everybody that remember the magic eraser can erase the past. And once that's done, then we can move forward with confidence and certainty because the scorecard is what we did with the redemption of what our scorecard is at the end of the game. And when we put those two things together and then we have a path forward that we trust, then we become a bit like unstoppable. And that's how all of this gets magically erased, where we can step onto the podium at the finish line with complete um, reverence and deep appreciation for the journey and the path that we will have gone through. But 
in addition to that, we would have been a showcase for humanity to look at on how you do it. And if we ever need uh, a showcasing of human courage in today's world that can't capitulate fast enough to the biggest bully, that needs uh, concrete evidence of people that can step into things and manifest things of significance, there's not a more important time in human history than now. So those are uh, some of the things that I would say, hold those things really close because when we're, as I told the woman today, I said that when you're mentally weak because you're tired and fatigued, which she was from uh, her uh, dissertation oral exam that she took, um, I said, when we're weak from uh, exertion, that's when the boogie wants, man wants to crawl inside our head. And that's when he's going to talk loudest to try to talk us out of things that could be our, our finest moments. Mm. Thanks for saying everything that you said with a lot of compassion and humanity. I think ultimately, you know, as coaches, we wanted to help our clients perform well at the same time. There is a bigger game underneath yeah. whatever the, the trophies they want to get, right? Yeah. Ultimately, it's about empowering them to go through their dark night of the soul and to have the courage, to have the way of being, to believe in themselves and the ability and their place in the world such that they can bring all of the, or transmute rather, their the traumatic experience into a gift and then share with others, the younger selves and so forth. So thanks for the way that you share that. Yeah, you're welcome. Just one other thing I'll add to this while we're freeforming our conversation is that I have a concept called the double win that is really important for me for all the individuals and teams and organizations that i work with that there's an academic goal that we wish to aspire to like i want to become an olympian or i was chosen to become an olympian you know by my soul which i showed up faithfully for and, and did manifest that but to say that um there is an academic win to this it's a goal observed that we achieve but in, in my view it's important that uh, we declare uh, some transformational things that have to happen within us in route to achieving the goal. Otherwise, it's a half win. I feel that with my clients, one thing that's abundantly part of every one of our conversations is, is that there are moments in the process where you're standing on a threshold that you have the choice of standing over and stepping into a different room with a different conversation, where in living, breathing time, you have a chance to break some of the chains of the past with behaviors that aren't no longer serving you well that in real time we can address as we're aspiring to this next segment in pursuit of your bigger goal. And I just make sure that we commit to that too, because it's a way of in real time transforming ourselves simultaneously with advancing towards uh, the academic win, the goal that we intend to pursue. And just wanted to kind of call that out that um, to really have a, a win that is transformative in terms of validation of self, uh, capable of doing certain things, but also ridding ourselves of the ballast of the past. It's no longer serving us well. I think that that needs to be built into every one of the uh, aspirations that we have. So what I'm hearing you say is not necessarily about the trophy per se, even though this is important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes who we get to be mm -hmm. in the process of there. Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that yeah. an accurate reflection? Yeah, 100%. And talking with a client today, as a matter of fact, I guess it's a client share day, but we were talking about this. Um, it's a new client that I'll be engaging here, and she's a very successful CEO. And what we were talking about today specifically is that 
these aspirations that we have, these goals, she says that, no, I want this to be 100% driven by an internal change within myself. I do not want this to be attached to a conventional goal that most people aspire to, meaning something outside of herself, like trophy or whatever. She wants this to be fully internalized by herself. So it's a transform, uh, a transformation of her, the individual, which I think always needs to be there because really uh, when I was dying from mercury poisoning 20 years ago, it's like I realized that if I do die, I didn't want to die, but some people, time, people do die. That mm -hmm. the only thing I was taking with me is what I gave others. And the only thing that I was going to be remembered by is what I did give them. That to me was the only thing that kind of ended up mattering from that point moving forward. And I, I learned from raising my daughter, uh, probably the most profound case history that I've ever had the chance to be involved in. I, I can honestly say that I have a certain level of invincibility about me, not that I can conquer every mountain, but there's nothing that can really kind of hurt me that I haven't already seen and that hasn't been addressed where I could sleep on a cot in the corner of a room and be happy for the rest of my life. I don't care because what does matter to me is as long as I have my ability to help others and be of service, I know why I'm getting up each every day. And it doesn't demand that I have a residence at the Four Seasons. I don't care. As long as I have a place to sleep and I can get up with honor and I can be of service to humanity, then I live a peaceful life. So again, I'm not tied to other things. So there's that kind of an invincibility that the things that we think that we need that will bring us what we think that we need to have, I've found to, to be a bit uh, irrelevant in a certain sense, even though I like beauty, I love fine architecture, I love beautifully crafted furniture and wood and homes and cars and things like that, for sure. I'm just saying that, that that's not a, a condition for which I, I judge as a scorecard for myself and the value and contribution of what my life is. And eventually you get to a place where we see the value of those things um, aren't what we thought they might be, but yet we can still hold and appreciate them. Yeah. I, I really love, this is what something, what an elder would say, right? Because no longer about the pursuit of those things. Those things are nice. You prefer it there. You appreciate the beauty and the, and the craftsmanship and everything at the same time. Also here, this is my metaphor. When you were saying this, you hold it loosely. You're not, that's, that's great to it. You're not like grasping for it. Like I must have it in order right. for me to feel fulfilled or significant in some particular way. That's the way I receive what you said. Which is the way that it should be. And that this kind of leads to another point there is that, you know, there are different decades that we go through that has a different lens of importance that we see the world through and we make decisions against. And I feel that we should never try to skip any of these steps to try to be too wise, too fast, because if we read a book and we try to be it, that's 20 years beyond where we are, that's not really you. So why don't you just kind of live where you are? Because what I do know is that if you're in your thirties, acquisition and scale is all you think about. And that's okay. That's the way that it should be. So don't try to think like a 30 where you're giving back and you're thinking about philanthropy right now or legacy, because it's a little bit too early for that. And I just always take again, where people uh, are, and as long as it's developmentally appropriate, I want to make sure that we safely get through that period, but we learn the lessons that we need to learn to continue to build upon our resources so that we ultimately are able to optimize the, the number and the volume and the significance of the uh, successes that we have moving forward. So this is actually a great segue to this thing I wanted to ask you, because as someone who's seen it all, when you see someone, let's say, 
you know, who's in their 30s and have an early success. And you know it's coming. The dark night of the soul is coming, right? The wall is coming. The internal, the external, it's yeah. coming. How do you prepare them before they go into the next phase? Because what most people do without proper advisement and so forth, they either they would just blow it up subconsciously or consciously, dry off the cliff, numb themselves with drugs or alcohol, or you know, get a divorce, whatever. Mm -hmm. Way to like a better word, self-sabotage, right? As a way to yeah. go through that journey. Yeah. So for someone who knows is coming as the corner man, how do you tactfully tell them it's coming? Because in my mind, it's a little confliction. You don't want to be the person plant that seed in their mind, a doubt. At the same time, you could also kind of see it coming. So how do you go about doing that? I'm curious. Well, first of all, um, you know, I come from reality. I, I don't come from mythology and I don't come from um, uh, practicality. You know, neither one of those is particularly useful because they're not exactly real. In my mind, part of the responsibility that I have as a corner man is to share with people what their journey is going to be. And I know what the journey of initial goal pursuit to goal achievement is. I know what that path is. And I know what's coming and it's not what people think that it should be because the experts aren't talking about that. You know, the experts are promising the shortcut that people will pay tens of thousands of dollars for the shortcut, but there are no shortcuts quite honestly. And so uh, my responsibility to my client is to make sure like, for example, the first thing that I do with anybody, if we're considering some level of engagement, is that we do a process that I call the clarity goal positioning survey. So we want to get abundant clarity on your goal and where its position is right now by doing a survey, a survey where they bring out all the instruments and make sure that they got the monuments correctly. So that the plot plan is perfectly done and manicured. Well, the clarity GPS is that because there are three things that we need to be explicitly clear on before we even begin pursuit of the goal. Number one, your goals, what are they? And then we need to ask ourselves, well, are they the right goals? There's all sorts of goals. There's big, audacious goals, there's moonshots, there's smart goals. But as far as I know, the most important goal is the right goal. And there's a criteria that I use with my clients to look at the goals that they're proposing to pursue and we want to make sure that they're the right goals because right goals have the best capacity and insurance that they will be achieved. And so we need to look at that. So once we've established that, which is kind of equal to the destination that we program into a GPS, and then we need to look at the starting location like a GPS. And what that means for us as the individual is that we need to know exactly where you are at this moment in time taking a thumbtack and putting it on the map on the wall and saying, you're here. And we have the evidence of this because we've looked at all the different variables that we need to know about you that determine your state of readiness right now to pursue any and every goal. Because knowing that state of readiness will inform us about the time and the energy and the distance between where you are and the time that it will take and the energy and the resource it'll take to get to that goal. And we need to know that. But most people don't care about the starting location. Most people, again, will pay tens of thousands of dollars to be given the plan just by my webinar. 
You know, they want the plan. Just buy it. Just follow it. And somehow that's a promise of a shortcut to get to where you want to go faster. They just want to get to the winner circle faster. But if you do not control your variables, the faster you go, the more risk you incur. And what happens is that as you start to derail, then you're unhappy with the advice that you got. You hate the program that you bought. You've lost a lot of time and effort and resources pursuing something that maybe shouldn't have been pursued in the first place. So for me, we've got to be explicitly clear on where that starting point is. And once we've established the starting point as it exists, your readiness against your goals, then we can devise the trajectory between the two that's got kind of two parts to it. Based upon the current knowledge base, there's a body of evidence that informs us about what we can project out into the future, the steps should be based on our current visibility, seeing the horizon that we're confident that we need and can get to. But then there are some things beyond the horizon that we could project and conjecture about that we can estimate, but we don't have enough information yet to say with 100% certainty that they're correct as of this time. But as we move forward in completing some of these initial targets, then we'll have more visibility and we'll have more to say about that later. I want to know that first and foremost with anybody. And why? Because it helps me determine whether I'm the right fit for them. It helps determine for them whether they really understand what it's going to, what it's going to take to get from where they want to get to from where they are. And so the way that I do it is that this is a kind of a modular piece. And if they I, want to, can I, I know you want to get to the, sure. the yeah. right goal real quick. You said no again, beautiful metaphors. So I wanted to undercap this real quick before we proceed. Okay. Yeah. Um, love the idea of having a GPS. Love the idea of clarify where one starts, where one want to go, and then then crap the path versus just give me a path. Right. Okay. Yeah. The path to where? <laughs> I don't care. Just give me the best tool, the best right. You know, funnel software. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. So knowing where you where you are, where you want to go, then crap another path. Love it. And I also love, let me underline this. It's not, it, it's, it's, it's about wherever you want to go, start there versus going, you know, way out there where your headlight doesn't even reach. Right. So what you see right now, where you want to go, that's a place to start. Is that a correct recap yeah. of what you share? Sure. And I'll add a couple little points of texture here is that let, let's say you have your GPS, correct? And my address is 1950 is what it is. So let's say by mistake, or because I'm sloppy, I program in you know 1960. Well, the GPS is going to have the start destination on the wrong side of the street, so automatically we're off course before we even start. Mm. Therefore, it's impossible to have the shortest path. Therefore, the risk increases of not getting to where you want to go and taking a detour off a cliff, actually. And then the other thing about this is that again, right goal is appropriate for a given set of circumstances. And a lot of people come to me and say, well. Jeff, you know, I'm supposed to have a moonshot here or a big hair audacious goal or as many as possible. And quite honestly, I don't even know how to think like that. It kind of scares me, but I, I need to go with the herd here. So I pretend like I have one and I know what I'm doing here. But I'm actually really scared about this. What do I do? I mean, I hear this all the time. So the deal is, is that we, we need to learn to be able to achieve goals first, because as my cycling coach told me, three-time Olympian, five-time national champion, he said, Jeff, 
I know you want to be an Olympian, but it's not about hard work and talent only. But uh, this type of goal, it's a learned behavior. And I, as your coach, I'm going to teach you the skill of consistently, predictably, and repeatedly achieving your goals. We're going to start small and we're going to continue to build so that you learn this skill correctly the first time. And that's what he did. See, most people think that goal setting is goal achievement. It's not. Goal setting is completely different than goal execution and pursuit. And I think somehow we have this idea that if we just have the right goal or the biggest goal, somehow everything automatically backfills. Well, I'm not sure exactly how that works out, but I found people to believe that because it does kind of sound good, but it doesn't have any basis in history. Therefore, if you're interested in looking at my model for goal achievement, just take the time uh, to go to www.beforeyouwin.com, B-E-F-O-R-E-Y-O-U-W-I-N.com. Just go there and it'll show you a nice little video about the model that I've created that I take my, my clients through. So again, big, hair audacious goal. Let's make sure that it's the right goal first. And when we get to the big, hair audacious ones, it's at the right time because we have the competency to pursue that. Our confidence is up. We believe in ourselves, And once we have uh, established the right goal, we have the right trajectory, we know our starting point, we know our goals, then that concludes clarity. And that's the place to start. And if a person wants to take what I do and implement it themselves, hey, that's great. You want to do it with someone else? Well, then you've gotten what I would give any Olympian that has aspirations to win a gold medal. That's exactly the quality of what I'm giving to you right now. If you want to do it with me, then we'll have a conversation about that. So that's the first part of the journey. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Before you go on, I got to ask yeah, you. For sure, man. It's all good. So, so you were seven years old when you even yeah. have the idea of becoming an Olympian. You yeah. had no idea what's it like to, you know, the lifestyle, the, the grueling hours and any of that stuff. Right. So how did your coach coach you? Because I mean, was he speaking to you like an Olympian back in seven or he was more of a, hey, let's scale it back, you know, quote unquote, realistic goals and then work your way up there. Does that make sense? Because you yeah. don't you didn't know what's it like to be an Olympian back then. So how do you? Right. I just thought it'd be cool to march into the stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it'd be cool. Well, it was, again, um, you know, he said to me, first conversation is that uh, winning is a learned skill. I'm going to teach you how to do that. And he was uh, a cyclist at the time himself competing at the highest level. So he invited me to train with the other guys that he trained with, which was at the national, international Olympic level. I was around that conversation. And while I was absorbing that, it just became natural to me to emulate that which they were doing that I had a proclivity for that was put into me young because I was around that. I thought, well, that's just normal. Okay, I can do that. And then he would give me my training instructions, the nuts and the bolts of how much to ride, how hard, when, that I was uh, compliant with because I have a self-start gene. And that's how my process began, where I was around it. I absorbed it. I didn't have to redo the tapes with a different emphasis later because I was already exposed to the language at the top. So my vocabulary grew and was developed around that. And the behavior that was displayed for me that I was around I had the ability to become that, therefore it drew that out of me. It was a natural part of my 
being, and it was a perfect fit. Mm. So and it was a, an apprenticeship at the at the highest level. Mm. I like that that word that you just use, apprenticeship, because mm-hmm. if if I'm hearing you right, correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm hearing you right, it wasn't like he was setting you up on the road of to be an Olympian per se, quote unquote. It was really more about teaching you the lifestyle, like the mm-hmm. vocabulary, mm-hmm. the energetic transmission, the yeah. the mindset along the way. And then it's still up to you to walk that path or not, ultimately. But he was really just more getting you acclimated to that lifestyle. Is that a... Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, his deal was, I mean, I know this, he didn't say it to me, but it's very clear that uh, his job was to uh, have me exposed to things and whatever was natural for me to absorb, I would absorb, which is beautiful because then he wasn't crafting me to be the next incarnation of him. You know, he wanted me to become the first version of myself and have my own pacing and those things that came naturally through my exposure that I took on was appropriate for my growth and my evolution at that point in time. And as I evolved in other areas of uh, importance, then uh, went through the same process. So to me, it was perfect because there was no expectation. It's like I never got yelled at. Um I was never uh, under any pressure to perform at a certain level because the assumption was, is that if this is really for you, then you don't need me to motivate you. And if you have the intelligence and the capacity to do this and you'll absorb it and you can go as far as you can go because you're welcome to join the party. That's how it worked out. Is that how you relate to your clients as well? Very neutral or are you more of the yelling coach type no i've never yelled at my daughter I've never yelled. no it's like i i know by if we're doing the gps with the person i i know on our initial phone call whether they've got what it takes or not and if they need motivation well they're at the wrong place if they're stuck in operations and nuts and bolts and things aren't up and running then it's a little bit premature for that it's just you know too much pain to try to be someone else's engine it just mm-hmm. doesn't work out i think there needs to be enough respect for the person, the process to not debilitate them by doing the work that they should be doing for themselves. Mm. So good. What you just said, can you say a little bit more about that? Don't do the work that they should be doing themselves. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, the job of the coach is to kind of know their tolerance at any point in time for what, and that's where you set what the next targets are and what the next refinements are of what you're doing. And I just put it out there as a matter of fact, like it's just implied that you're going to do this. I'm not going to motivate you to do it. It's implied that uh, you're here because you want to fulfill what you have written to me in your application that we talked about. Your targets are really your targets and and you're uh, all in to do this. And therefore, we don't even need to talk about it. That's just part of the implication of this. And I feel that uh, if someone needs me to motivate them, then I'm doing for them what they should be doing for themselves. And I would never be so presumptuous to uh, prevent them from the experience of becoming who they are actually through their own merits, because I would be taking away their ability to develop confidence in themselves by doing that. Mm. I love that. You know, in in, uh, my men's work, which is different from metal in my, another men's group, Mm -hmm. that's part of what we talked about a lot is how do you provide masculine care Mm. to another man? Mm -hmm. And, and I struggle with that. And I love that you, Mm-hmm. Uh, illustrate that that point so beautifully mm-hmm. well thank you i think again that's the responsibility of the coach is to really understand the reach of the individual 
And there's ways that you can suggest things that do draw them in or recruit them to do certain things without um, actually uh, designing uh, that uh, too specifically for them. And that's part of the art of the coach. They know how to put things out there that, again, are aspirational and inspirational simultaneously. And generally things that are slightly outside the reach of a person they're capable of doing, but they just haven't done it yet. And as long as we choose those correctly and we don't do that too often, we know when to push and when to pause and we give them the assurance uh, of that. I mean, kind of what I do with my clients is I read them all about the high achievers being able to peak perform on command by first off, not blowing themselves up. A lot of people do and being able to peek around the corner and see what's coming to seize the best opportunities and avoid preventable problems. And then kind of reclaiming your schedule. And if you, then those three things, then you're pretty much on your way uh, to write your own ticket moving forward. So you've worked with some of the best of the best, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Tiger Woods, Lame Songs, you just name a few of them. There's a mythology of their more, I don't know, angelic than other people. I mean, they're more, you know, they're not mortals, right? Like that's kind of like the mythology of them. And you obviously you've worked with them one-on-one -on -one before. So what did those two human beings have that other people just didn't have? Uh, well, I, if I don't ask you that question, people are going to be upset. That's no, it's, it's, it, no, it's a great, it's, it's a great question. I was thinking that, you know, maybe put Bono in there as well, that, um, yeah, of course. You know, all of them are looking for information and they want to know the truth of what it is. Like, Tiger, is this serious? You know, Lance, I'm feeling almost too good. Uh, I mean, there's interesting things that they're looking for reality checks against what their experience is to make sure that they're neither over or undershooting that they're putting their energy and the effort where it counts and they're not coming into it looking for a yes answer to make them feel good but they're actually looking for input that informs them about their state of readiness and where that is in relationship to when they have to perform which is really refreshing to do this and you never need to worry about if they have a question they're going to come and ask but they're not going to come and ask prematurely they're going to make sure that they'll ask the question when they've exhausted their ability to provide themselves with their own solution, which is exactly the way that it needs to be. Mm. And that they are open to sound counsel and they are fearless about implementing those things that make sense to them. That implies that the people that they enlist to provide them with insight, there has to be an explicit level of trust and the value and accuracy of uh, information that they're being provided with. Uh, they're incredibly resilient and, and they don't um, take losing as being, they're not okay with losing, which I think is the proper way to do it. I mean, they're very philosophical about it. They know they're not gonna win every time, but you know, they, they don't take it as being okay. You know, which I think is correct as well. If there are things that could have done, been done better, that's great. And as long as you can be graceful when things don't go the way that you want, then that's okay too. There's a certain honesty about them that 
Um, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the, the the real top of the pile, they're they're really neat people to be around. They're honest. They're usually generally very charitable. They they're extraordinarily intelligent and philosophical about things. But then the people just below that, you know, those are the kind of trash talkers. You know, the ones that the media finds really exciting because you know they're always involved in some controversy and you know, always digging up something and saying something off color. You know, you, you could tell the guys that are going to make it and stay there. And you could tell the guys that may have a one act wonder performance that can't stay there just because they're just a little bit, you know, too exaggerated in everything that they do. They just don't have a reality against what it takes to get and stay there. There's not a level of appreciation um, that kind of needs to be there that, that speaks to me that says staying power. And, um, you know, it, what always astounds me is that the billions of dollars that are wasted every year on talent, and somehow people think that talent's going to be delivered on. I mean, if you look at the way that people think and talk, to me, that's your insurance policy, because if what they're saying and how they're solving problems doesn't conform to what you know can get them into the winner's circle, then no amount of talent is going to make up. Wait, wait, you, you lost me. Back up two sentences. One more time, please. I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, was uh, something, something about winner's circle, the way they talk. Oh, yeah. It, it's like I can be around someone for five seconds, and you, you can tell the language that they use and what they're saying against aspirations or whatever, and you can tell their reality and whether or not they're going to be able to get there. And if their language and their presence of being doesn't radiate with a certain kind of known presence of being and language that translates to being able to deliver on the promise, you, you can't trust that they're going to get there. And they're probably not because they're not providing the evidence that you need to see to know that uh, history tells us we need to be seeing to be confident that they can deliver on, on what their promise is. And mm -hmm. people spend billions of dollars a year on talent you know, on GRE scores and how fast they can run a, a 40 yard dash and how, what their bench press is. It's really about how do they think? And notice I didn't say uh, mindset that I'm going to mow anything down, that I'm invincible, that that's not a good mindset, but I want to know how they're, th remember champions mind, not mindset, mind. How is this brain thinking and interpreting and ingesting and collating and responding to data? And when we have evidence of that, I mean, to me, that's our real predictor of how far a person's going to go. Mm. Um, a lot of place to, my, you know, my mind just came up with a question. Not a question I normally would ask. Oh, but I'm now, now I'm excited. <laughs> now I'm excited. Well, well, I mean, with with your discernment in in the micro expressions and the way that people speak mm -hmm. and act and the presence of being in terms of athletes, why mm -hmm. not? doing some like sports betting or something like that <laughs> it was that way you could just you know just like hey this person is gonna go somewhere yeah, yeah not a question i normally will ask it's a little bit more sophisticated but i had to ask i think it's a great idea it was that the question that yeah, you don't have to answer it was, no no like, no like a random puff no, of an no, idea no, that, that is maybe, maybe i should shift my emphasis a little bit you know on the different <laughs> you know different verticals here i think i have potential 
but but I think there, there is a lot to say for that because there are certain things that are absolutely predictable. Like I, I can listen to someone talk and I can tell you exactly how far they're going to go mm. only because of the language that they use, the inflections, what their history is. I mean, it's a, it's a predictor of future, like for sure. And I, I get the talent side of it, but as my coach said, you know, will and talent means something, but it's not everything. Mm. It's a learned skill. And if I don't hear people talking uh, in a way that uh, confirms that they understand the process and where they are, then if it's wrong, you can't get to right. If it's wrong, it's not possible. That's why I kind of feel like every professional team should have me talking with every one of their potential players just to have a, a simple conversation to kind of test the waters against their problem solving and how they really think. Mind over matter is not a criteria. That, that's not a great predictor of success. That's usually a sign of impulsiveness that tries to get the advantage too quickly that often fumbles the ball on the one yard line, quite, quite honestly. Mm. My over matter is not a recipe for success. Say more about that because in my mind, what you say is the opposite. So say that again, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. So mind over matter, that doesn't guarantee success. That mentality is just like, I'm going to mow down anything in my way and leave a trail of destruction 10 miles long behind me. And I'll eventually get to the finish line. And I'm saying, well, that's not really true because you're, you're bringing hyper-focus to what you're doing. Hyper-focus is really not um, a state of being that any peak performer brings into any achievement of notoriety. There's a special type of focus that I call GOCUS. It's a trademark. Yeah, it's a trademark word, GOCUS, G-O-C-U-S-T-M. It's a trademark word. It stands for goal focus. And goal focus is a combination of hyper focus to complete actions in front of you that advance towards goal completion. But it also is peripheral vision that goes from cone of focus outwards on both sides for another 280 degrees of view. And in peripheral vision or situational awareness, this is where we see better options starting to show up. This is where we see blind sides starting to form in their infancy that if we see them, then we can avoid them from manifesting. We can nip them at the bud. And if we see something that can take us to a bigger, better, faster goal, then we can choose it and change trajectory to ride that free insight to a bigger, better, faster that we couldn't give ourselves. But if we're caught in hyper-focus, you're not gonna see that. So the hyper-focus actually blinds us from some protection and uh, from some better revelation. So a lot of the mythology around this is pervasive. I get that. And unfortunately, um, it encourages a lot of people to do some things that actually discount the potential evolution that they actually have because it can't take them to where they want to get to, even though it sounds good. Mm. So you had made a point to say that you used to work with athletes and now work with business people yeah. in the top level. So can you share with us what's similar and what's different about, you know, the athletes at the top level and business people at the top level? What's the difference from, and, and also the similarity that you see? Well, one's a locker room, the other one's a boardroom. But sure. Okay, that's people, obvious. Everybody, everybody goes to their sacred space to conduct their meetings and things like that. And the content and the uh, consequences and the path forward are relatively the same. And the challenges are always the same. You know, I mean, in the boardroom, it may be what sort of pencil do you want to use today? You know, we're in the locker room. What 
type of chalk do you want to use on the chalkboard? But those are like business coach formalities. Those are not um, really high level executive strategic conceptual uh, ways of looking at the unconventional to capitalize on opportunity. But I've found there's really kind of no distinction at a certain level. It's about how you show up. It's about how you problem solve. It's about, are you reading the terrain correctly? Do you know human nature enough to know what to predict out of who based upon what they're saying? All of those are, are common to both domains. There is no distinction there. So to me, I can play in both worlds uh, equally well. But again, if you want to know what interest rate to use, uh, don't ask me. Um, but if you want to know how to uh, interpret what somebody is uh, saying that could project what their potential is and what we can expect out of them, like that's completely fair game. I, I like the, uh, the business space. Uh, it carries a lot of intensity. Uh, people are really inclined to listen. I don't mind the uh, sports world if uh, you know you, the athlete, are paying me, and uh, you have and have demonstrated to me you have what it takes to be a, a coachable someone that can step into what's possible here. And I think that's becoming more and more difficult over time as the athletes start to overestimate uh, their abilities and their contribution to humanity. Um, that's become a little bit more difficult to find these days. Say more about that last sentence you said, their ability to contribute to humanity. Why is that important for you? Well, because I think that um, there are people out there looking for uh, ways of engaging life that lead to a life of prosperity and value. And we take our cues from someone. And uh, usually those are people that are in the spotlight and they listen uh, if you're in the spotlight, therefore, whatever you say, we have to take as true. But that's not really true either. That's that's myth. And uh, I believe that um, there's a lot of opportunity here to influence in just a, a beautiful way that I don't think is being capitalized on. Um, I think it perpetuates a lot of the mythology. And uh, that's not a game that I like to play. I feel that we need to give people skills and tools that will help them have a lifetime of double wins together. And uh, uh, that's the way I look at it. Mm. One thing that I hear a lot about these days is people have a real hard time dealing with FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. They see, they see, you know, their friends, making tons of wins and money from the development of crypto or NFTs and new exponential technologies. And I'm sure it's probably similar in the performance uh, sports space, right? You know, mm -hmm. this new healing technique and this new power technique, this new recovery method. Mm -hmm. How do you advise people dealing with FOMO? Well, what I do know is that if you try to cover all the bases, you're going to be mediocre at best at everything. Uh, and the world does change, rap is changing rapidly and dramatically for sure. I get that. There are certain ages that are much more vulnerable to FOMO than other ages. Like at my age, who cares? You know, people like really? you. Yeah. Well, I mean, seriously, missing out on what? You know, it's like, I'm okay. I mean, okay. seriously, I don't, I don't feel like that, you know? So... Again, when you're in your ascension, then 
there is a lot of comparisons and that generally peaks in the early 40s mm. and so you know i've i've got all this worked out i i have i know exactly what's going to happen in each of the decades which helps inform me about the person's uh, maturity and whether they're on a developmental path to manifest best or whether they're delayed behind or whether they're delusional i mean i i've got a model and a system that that knows how to look at that but uh, to say that um i would say that the biggest addiction that we have the whole reason why we're addicted to our devices is because we're afraid uh that if we miss that one text that that's the one text that will uh take us to the promised land and if we don't get it we're going to get left behind and if we get left behind then we're going to live a life of uh, obscurity no one to share it with, uh, nothing to uh, show evidence of the quality of us and our capability. And I, I, I learned this because I, I always was wondering about there has to be a primal fear that we all have. Because what I do know is that every one of us has got an invisible hand that's holding us back that won't let us go all in. It's just too scary to do it. It's like, I'm gonna exhaust every possibility here. I'm going all in, and what if this doesn't work? It's too scary for me, I can't do it. There's an invisible hand that holds every one of us back if we're honest about it and we know it. And I wondered about what's the primal nature of that? Because there has to be a singular something about that. And one day I was riding my bike, which is every day, which I intend to be doing here in a little bit, um, there was, uh, I was rounding a corner and there was this boy that was maybe 10 years old that had stepped off of a curb and was facing down the street. And there was a school bus bench there that he had stepped off of. And the backpack was kind of hanging really low on his shoulders, you know, almost off his shoulders on the ground. He's looking like this. And, uh, I wonder why is he so despondent? And I saw that there was a school bus that he missed and all the kids had their noses stuck against the back window and they were waving to him laughing. Mm. And I realized that he got left behind. Mm. And therefore, uh, he was so despondent because he got left behind, man. There's nobody to share life with. There's nothing. I'm here by myself. I'm insulated and isolated. And I, and I realized that that's like the primal fear. That's why we're addicted to the phone. Because mm -hmm. we, if we don't answer something, we're going to get left behind. And if we get behind, we miss the school bus. We're not going to be loved or liked. We're going to be insulated and isolated. We're going to be ostracized from the group. There's going to be nothing left, just a, a dark gray tunnel that we're stuck in for the rest of our life. I realize that that's the primal fear. And mm -hmm. so, again, that's a human mindset deal, right? Human mindset. I'm afraid I'm going to get left behind. That's not a champion mind action. It's not but yet it's primal. We would expect that because that's high speed, faster than we can think, and everybody's got it. Therefore, it meets the criteria. FOMO is a perfect human mindset descriptor. Um, so that's what I see. And one of the things that has to be reconciled in life is you're not gonna be able to do everything possible and nobody's got a crystal ball. And there are many points along the journey that I've already figured out that I, you asked me earlier about how do I talk to my clients about their future without putting a wet blanket over their enthusiasm? Well, it's to point things out in advance. And the reason why I do that is that, and this is a typical conversation, I would say, take this from my daughter. 
I say to my daughter, you know, Ken, I need to talk to you about something. You're not going to understand this, but I'm going to share with you what you need to know right now to put it on record so that when it happens, you and I will already have had a pre-conversation about this. We'll pick up where we left off because mm. I'm telling you this now. Because do you do this weekly, quarterly, monthly? As it comes up, mm. as it occurs to me, I do it uh, on premises when it surfaces. And then I say, and this is really important, I say to her, because I never want to come, I never want you to come to me. And the words I never want to hear from you is, Dad, why didn't you tell me? I never want to hear that from you. I don't expect you to understand this now, but I'm putting it on record. And when I put it that way, she never feels like I'm giving her a lecture because I'm not. I'm pre-informing her about something because as a dad, this is what I never want to hear from you. So she knows I'm acting on her behalf when I'm saying this to her. And that's the way that I interface with my clients. I had that today. CEO of a company, 45 years old. There is nobody in that company that would talk to her like I did today. And I said, you're in trouble. This is make it or break it time for you. There are certain things that have to go right. Otherwise, you're in danger of a lot of things, not immoral, illegal, but just health-wise, et cetera. And so I came to her because I had the information that I shared to give her a preview of what's coming. It's not here yet, as I told her. We have time to make adjustments here, but on its current trajectory, this is where it's gonna land. Let's just kind of know that like right now. And that's the conversation that I have with all my clients. Because I've been around the block a lot, I kind of know what's coming. Therefore, I can inform them in advance so that they know when those symptoms show up that now they're there where I projected that they would be. Now we need to have that conversation. So what does that do for them and what does that do for me? Well, first off, when it shows up, then they look at me as a mind reader, as a clairvoyant. They trust me a lot. They really want me to be in their corner moving forward because I bring to them a bit of a crystal ball to call out what they can't have conceived of yet. Well, because I've been in the game longer and I kind of know that if I see this, then this is coming so that it protects them and it makes me look like a genius. And so therefore the relationship continues, you know, as it should be. So that's the way that um, I do it. And that's the conversation that we hold and that's the conversation that I know that needs to be had. But they get, then again, to do that, th there needs to be a, a credible uh, source to be able to bring that forward where it's not intellectual learning that some brainiac learned from a book that's just reciting what they read but never have experienced. Reciting that. what Jeff Spencer told him. Yeah, well, they, the yeah, yeah, well that, that's okay too, but you know, they can use me as a reference so I'm not gonna tell you anything that hasn't been experienced. But, you know, we're just sort of saying here that there is a level of credibility that's conveyed through the experience that makes it real, that makes a collaboration really close and really intimate because it's based on the fundamental um, element of uh, you know, human experience, which is trust. Jeff, I mean, I'm looking at the time. Oh, oh you're getting just getting warmed up. Yeah, let's go. I mean, hey, man, if you want to do it, let's do it. But, but one thing I, I, I do wanted to say, 
the way I feel, right? The part of the reason I started Noble Warriors because I want to talk to more elders. You mm -hmm. know, Chinese culture, we have a lot of reverence. Mm, yeah, of course. Towards our elders, mm -hmm. right? And for me, um, it, it, it's, it, it serves, well, the our listeners, but really mankind at large, right? Because the ripple effect, the, the ripple effect continues that way. From my perspective, I definitely want to see more of you. So, mm -hmm. as in, as in, how could we use exponential technology mm -hmm. as a way to duplicate Jeff, right? Mm -hmm. His wisdom, and then such that can serve more uh, leaders, founders, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs as a way to build technologies that's aligned. Mm -hmm. They really are versus because we make what we are. If we mm -hmm. are not aligned internally, guess what? The technologies we built will not be aligned. Right. Yeah, well, so, so if, I've never done this before, but I'm curious. Forward looking, what possibilities do you see with cryptocurrency and NFT and all these other new things that's coming online, artificial intelligence, as a way to help you amplify the wisdom that you have and then also keep your life more exciting you know, well it will certainly do that in more i think all of those vehicles are opportunities to reach more people faster um and also relieve the burden of some of the cumbersome of uh, past recent past technology which i'm i'm a big fan of like for sure so uh you know i'm not going anywhere i'm in this for the long game, even though I'm pretty long into the game, I'm still in it because I have a mission to continue to contribute what I know to be true to help those that uh, find their way into uh, you know, my proximity and, and vice versa to uh, be able to uh, illuminate the, the reality and some of the mechanisms that will allow us to be more effective in what we do. I think there's a, a great opportunity here for a collaboration on a variety of different levels that uh, I'm all ears for. <laughs> I do also feel that, um, you know, we're in a very uh, challenging point in human history that uh, we may find ourselves in a situation that's difficult to unravel. And uh, if there's ever a point in human history where we really need to come from our truth, it's now more than ever. Mm. I'll, uh, maybe do you mind saying more about that, actually, if you don't mind? Well, I just feel that, you know, the ultimate responsibility that we have is to speak our truth. And when we come from our truth, then we've done our part uh, in the human um, experience, should I say. And there's a lot of polarization, like right now, that will find some level of equilibrium. I don't know how to define that at this point in time, but uh, I'm a champion of, uh, here's what I have to say about this, is that there's only one of everybody in all of creation, meaning that there's only one CK in all of creation that has unique ability to manifest um, a very unique contribution to humanity that only you can make. There's only one of me and there's only one of everybody and whatever environment is necessary to cultivate the opportunity to maximize that, that's what I'm for because I believe that's why we're here on this planet. You know, we're not here to forfeit everything that makes us distinct. I think we're here to honor our talents, to showcase them, uh, to show other people what's uh, possible and to not um, 
decide the merits of our gifts based on the size of what we perceive them to be in their contribution, meaning that the definition of a champion is a manifesto of gifts. So that levels mm-hmm. the playing field. It levels completely levels the playing field. And um, it's extraordinarily important that we don't place a judgment on what we believe the value of our contribution is. For example, when I was uh, had aspirations as an Olympian, a guy wore an Olympic t-shirt into a bike shop and I saw it and I wanted that t-shirt. The only way he could get it was to become an Olympian, but he doesn't ever remember wearing the t-shirt, I'm sure. But yet that one thing that I saw became my logo that I committed to for 10 years to becoming an Olympian. Had I not seen the t-shirt, then that would have like never happened. And what I do know is that if we compare what we believe the significance of our contribution is, that's a huge disservice to us because I don't think that we should be the ones to decide on what the impact is. I think we need to cherish and grow our gifts. We need to show up faithfully every day to grow and build them and to showcase them and to implement them. And wherever they go and the people that they touch will combine in a certain way that will create uh, a certain impact and and statement and have an effect on the universe that that we're accountable to. And we will uh, have as an entry in our life scorecard um, when we kind of uh, turn it in for the last time. And uh, the other thing I'll say here to to conclude this here is that um, going back to my daughter here, we didn't talk a lot about my daughter, but that's its own story, but to say that um, if you ever doubt the value of a thing that you say and a thing that you do adopted kid, because my daughter hung on my every word. And for me, that's enough to get up every day and to be of highest service and to come from my highest place of contribution to show her what's possible as a father and hopefully as a role model that she will aspire to be because the other side of this is every day decide how you're going to show up because um, if people had showed up differently for my daughter, she wouldn't uh, have the scars that she didn't ask for that were imposed upon her by the actions of others, both physical and mental that uh, may haunt her for the rest of her life. And she didn't ask for that. But yet had people showed up differently, she wouldn't have to deal with that. And that's why I just feel like every day, if you can't show up for yourself to be the best that you can be, show up for other people to be the best that you can be for them. It's part of what they need to see showcased by us. And it's part of our therapy for us to become the best that we could be. And with that, I'll say thanks for the opportunity, CK. It's really been a delight. Uh, one last thing I wanted to add on to what you just said. Uh, Joe Rogan had a conversation with Dave Chappelle recently. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I respect both of them. And yeah. then and then um, they were talking about the value of having kids. And mm-hmm. then Joe Rogan said, my children expanded my capacity for love. Yeah, 100%. Like, 100%. Yeah. 100%, man. It's like, I for me personally, um, you know, what I learned about love is that you can love anybody. She's not my biology, but, you know, she is of my soul and you can love anybody at any time. You just decide you're going to do it. You don't need a special agreement based upon what you're going to get back. To me, it's a one way street. It's unconditional. It's just a decision that you have to make. And when you make it, there's such a liberation in that because there will things that you will do for them that you won't do for yourself. 
and they'll put you on your knees uh, seriously. And why that's important is that every one of us has got something deeper in us that begs to find its way to the surface to be part of our reason and showcase who we really are. But if life is too good, you're never going to ask a set of questions deep enough to ever contemplate that. And that's the value of it. And if you have a cold or a broken toe or a chipped fingernail, again, that is just insignificant to the nth degree. But when you're dealing with a child where there is no owner's manual and it's incessant day in and day out, it's a life changer for sure. And I don't know, I'm not sure that most of us as humans have what it takes to be able to have the awareness and the introspection necessary to go deeper and find that extra dimension within us that can be our, our best and our finest work without children. That's just my experience for myself. It doesn't hold true for others. Uh, only experience will tell us which one it is for us. I mean, coming from you, that's as a former Olympian, the cornerman of multiple, you know, medalists, the best of the best. I mean, what you just said speaks volumes. <laughs> well, thanks, man. It's the gold medal of all time. Thank you for acknowledging that. Hey, Jeff, uh, I literally could speak to you for hours. Um, just really appreciate how you showed up. Thank you. Just easy how, how you channel, you know, divinity inner or or within or without and, and, and your commitment to really make a difference such mm -hmm. that the ripple effect continues such no, that you. the best people can show up knowing that they are the the manifester of their talents and show up to the best and then make Obligation. it be a champion. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just thank you. I, I, I love you and thank you so much for being on Noble Warrior. Well, that's uh, very much appreciated. And if people like to get in touch with me, it's www.drjeffspencer.com. That's all I have to say. Thanks again uh, for the amazing experience, CK. Onward and upward. Uh, big love, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time.